Welcome to the Employment Law and HR Podcast with your host, Allison Colley. Hello and welcome to this episode number 107 of the Employment Law and HR Podcast. I'm your host, Alison Colley. I'm an employment solicitor and HR specialist and I run the firm Real Employment Law Advice where I work with my colleagues providing advice and assistance to employers and employees. For those of you who listen regularly will know that I have been keeping up quite a good schedule of two weekly podcasts of late, but I did miss one two weeks ago and I have to apologise for those of you who do listen regularly and who are waiting for the latest episode. Unfortunately, my son was taken ill into hospital and when I would normally have been recording the podcast, I was actually sitting in the hospital. So, These things come up and unfortunately, whilst I have tried really hard to set some podcasts up and to have some in the bag, it just works out that I never really have one available, um, ready to go when I really need it. So I do apologise for that, but things happen. Um, Hopefully that will be made up for in this episode and I'll try to keep up the two weekly schedule as normal. So This week I'm going to be covering a case from the Employment Appeal Tribunal and without further ado I will get into this week's featured content. As I say I'm going to be covering a case from the Employment Appeal Tribunal and this is one which involves the question of jurisdiction and time limits again. Now for those of you who are involved in employment law and cases in the Employment Tribunal on a regular basis you will understand that time limits are really important in the employment tribunal, particularly for those who advise employees. The time limits are very strict. There's a strict three-month time limit for most claims in the employment tribunal, which is extended where early conciliation applies. And there are various cases that have come up in relation to that, and which I've covered in the podcast or in the blog posts on the website adviceforemployers.co.uk if you want to go back and have a look at those. But this one is slightly different in that it involves the claim form not including the ACAS early conciliation number correctly. The case is Mrs. Zhu, I'm hopefully I'm saying that right, and her employer is North East London NHS Foundation Trust. Now The facts of this case are very simple and straightforward in relation to the issues because they haven't actually been dealt with yet. And that is that Mrs. Zhu made claims against her former employer for whistleblowing detriments, dismissal and notice and holiday pay. And I say that the issues haven't really come out yet because although her claims originate from 2015, they've only been dealt with at the very preliminary stage because of an error made on her claim form. So when it comes to an employee submitting their claim form to the employment tribunal there is a number of information on the claim form which is required information so that is necessary in order for the claim to be accepted by the employment tribunal and this includes the early conciliation number. 
So when employees go through early conciliation, if it's unsuccessful with ACAS, they issue a certificate which has a long number on it and it's a requirement for submitting the claim that the employee must put the early conciliation number onto the claim form, which is known as the ET1. And if this doesn't happen, then the claim will be rejected. Now, in Mrs. Zhu's case, what happened was she'd been through early conciliation and she had put the early conciliation number onto the form, but hadn't put the full details on there. So we had missed the forward slash and the two end digits, which normally represent the year. Now, the circumstances of Mrs. Zhu are that she had solicitors representing her, but in order to save costs, she had asked them to just prepare the particulars of her claim and she was completing the claim form herself. And this is a common scenario when advising employees, I have to say. If they have a limited budget, employees will try to do what they can for themselves. And in this case, she said, I'll fill out the form if you can deal with the details. Not an unreasonable request. And what happened was Mrs. Zhu completed the form, the solicitors completed the particulars of claim and submitted it to the employment tribunal on the very last day of her deadline, which was the 30th of September 2015. And judging by the details contained in the judgment, the solicitors lodged this by hand, by hard copy, with the employment tribunal. Now, those of you who have looked at the forms online or have ever had to submit a claim on behalf of an employee online will know that if you are filling out the claim form using the online system and you do not put the correct number in or the right number of digits for the early conciliation number, it won't let you proceed. And I've had various frustrating times trying to put the number in myself and missing something out or not getting the forward slash in the right place and it comes up with a red error message and won't let you continue. So it's not something that in my view can happen if you do the claim form online unless of course you get the digits completely wrong but the number is correct so that the electronic system accepts it. Um, so in any event that didn't happen here they did the form by hard copy and submitted it to the employment tribunal. And then, due to the administration and the way in which the tribunals work, the claim form wasn't returned to the solicitors, so the error wasn't picked up until the 1st of October 2015, and it was returned, received by the solicitors, I think on the about the 4th or the 5th of October, and then returned with the completed number on it the next day. But of course, the new resubmitted claim with the correct number was out of time by just over a month. And this is where the problem arose for Mrs. Zhu and her claim. Now, under Section 111 of the Employment Rights Act, which deals with the time limit for bringing a claim, it does also say that a claim form must be presented to the Employment Tribunal before the end of the period of three months beginning with the effective date of termination, or within such further period as the tribunal considers reasonable in a case where it is satisfied that it was not reasonably practicable for the complaint to be presented before the end of the period of three months. And this was the question that the Employment Tribunal had to do with at preliminary hearing stage, and that was whether it was reasonably practicable for Mrs. Zhu to submit her claim within time. Now, 
the employment tribunal at first instance decided that it wasn't reasonably practicable for her to submit her claim within time. And this is where it then went forward to the Employment Appeal Tribunal, who assessed the various case law in this area and looked at the circumstances of Mrs. Zhu's case compared to those of cases that have come before. Now, what the Employment Tribunal had decided was that Mrs. Zhu's claim had been rejected because it did not contain the correct early conciliation number. And therefore, the question was whether it would have been reasonably practicable to present the claim in time. And the claimant and her solicitors, believing that they had presented a properly constituted claim in time, albeit having a mistaken belief. And they analysed the situation here, as in that Mrs. Sue believed that she had submitted a correct claim and a valid claim within time as she had not realised she hadn't put the early conciliation claim number in correctly. And her solicitors, having not reviewed the claim form at Mrs. Zhu's instructions, had also believed that the claim form had been correct. So at the time they submitted the claim within time, they believed it to be correct. And therefore, their argument was that it wasn't reasonably practicable for them to have submitted the claim within time, having known that they had already submitted a claim and believing that that to be correct. The NHS Trust, however, appealed on the basis that they believe that the Employment Tribunal had wrongly applied the reasonably practicable test in making the decision here. Now, ordinarily, where an employee's solicitors make a mistake in relation to the submission of a claim or in relation to time limits, in the past, Employment Tribunals have found that the employee cannot rely on the reasonably practicable test because they had professional advisors but rather the employee's remedy in those circumstances where their professional advisor has advised wrongly is to bring a claim against their advisor for the negligent advice and that's been cases in the past where for example solicitors have wrongly calculated the time limits but in this case There was another question, as in that Mrs. Zhu had taken it upon herself to prepare the claim form and had not actually wanted to pay her solicitors to advise her on that. And whilst the solicitors clearly missed it on the claim form, it wasn't necessarily within their remit to have reviewed it and have seen that before submitting. Now, the NHS Trust said quite clearly in this case, their position was that because the employment tribunal had found that the employee solicitors had been at fault, this was sufficient to make it clear that they had been unreasonable in their submission of the claim. And therefore, they could not rely on the not reasonably practicable exemption for an extension of time. They said that the question that is at the heart of this appeal and that is whether it was reasonable for Miss Sue to place reliance on the submission of the first claim form, given the error made by her solicitors in failing to check the form sufficiently, thoroughly enough to pick up the mistakes she had made. If her solicitors had, had, had acted unreasonably in this regard, then given the application in previous cases, it would have been reasonably practicable for the claim to have been presented validly and in time at least so far as the early conciliation number was concerned. And this was the crucial issue which the Employment Tribunal needed to address and demonstrate that they had considered in their judgment. 
And because the Employment Tribunal hadn't validly considered that and hadn't demonstrated that they had in their judgment, the appeal was allowed and, and the case was remitted back to the Employment Tribunal for consideration of this point. But the Employment Appeal Tribunal were very clear on this and they didn't necessarily mean or say that the NHS Trust's appeal remission back to the Employment Tribunal would succeed on this point. And I'll just read from the summary of the judgment for you because I think this is a really interesting point to, to note. And it says the claimant had believed, so Miss Sue had believed that she had lodged a properly constituted claim in time because she had confidence in her professional advisors. If those advisors had unreasonably failed to lodge a properly constituted claim in time, then the application of the principles from previous case law would mean that she would not be entitled to simply rely on her confidence in what they had done. And so she would be bound by that unreasonable conduct. That is to say, the employee would be bound by the unreasonable contact of her professional advisors. And therefore, the question really for the Employment Tribunal was whether her solicitors had acted reasonably in the circumstances. And whilst the tribunal had found that they were unquestionably at fault in failing to check the claim form thoroughly, they did not conclude that this automatically meant that their conduct was unreasonable. So there was an element here of deciding that actually it wasn't necessarily the case that the solicitors had been unreasonable because of the way in which Miss Sue had engaged their services. And the appeal tribunal said this was a permissible view given the facts of the case. In particular that Miss Sue, having undertaken to complete the ET1 form herself to save expense. And therefore what the employment tribunal needed to do was to demonstrate that they had engaged with the question of whether the claimant's solicitors had acted reasonably. Whilst this case doesn't provide a definitive answer in relation to the question of the reasonableness here, it does raise some issues about the way in which solicitors provide services to the clients and employees, etc. What it means if you're an employer is that you should ensure that you think carefully about the timings and the way in which the case has been submitted and therefore it may be possible to challenge the decision of the employment tribunal to allow a case to proceed where it is seemingly out of time. In my view given the indications made by the employment appeal tribunal in this case once it returns if it does return to the employment tribunal for decision then I think it's likely given the way in which Miss Sue had completed the claim form herself that the Employment Tribunal will find that it wasn't unreasonable conduct for the solicitors and therefore they will say it wasn't reasonably practicable for her to submit her claim within time and will allow it to proceed. There have been a number of cases, as I said before, about administrative errors, administrative issues in relation to claim forms and them being rejected. In fact, when I was a trainee solicitor, the solicitor who was training me inadvertently failed to include an employee's address on the claim form and the claim was rejected and then resubmitted again out of time but the case went to the appeal tribunal and they decided that it wasn't reasonable to reject the claim on the basis that the employee's address hadn't been included when all other details had been. So it just demonstrates that really you need to take extra care when submitting claims if you are acting for employees or if you're an employee yourself and that when you're completing the forms whether you're an employee or an employer 
who's responding to a claim, you need to ensure you do so within a good time and that you don't delay. The problems often arise when they're being dealt with at the last minute or on the last day before it can be submitted and therefore errors are more likely to occur and it's much more difficult to rectify them later on. If there's any further updates on this case I will of course cover them in the podcast so that we keep you up to date on what's happening but I thought it would be an interesting one to cover given the issues particularly in relation to procedure here. Of course, if you have any questions that you'd like me to cover in the podcast or you have anything you want to contribute or if you think that you would be a good person to interview or if you have any really good experiences that you'd like to share with everyone, then please do get in touch. My email is alison at realemploymentloradvice.co.uk. I'd be very happy to hear from you. And of course, if you do need any help or assistance yourself or you know of anyone who does, then we'd be very happy to help you as well. We provide advice and assistance to clients throughout the UK. Thank you very much for listening and I hope you have a fantastic week. Thanks again for listening. Just want to finalise by saying I wouldn't be a lawyer unless I had a legal disclaimer. So I must just say to you that the information in this podcast is for information only. It's general review and a general update. It's always necessary to get specific legal advice about your circumstances. So please don't rely on anything that you've heard in this podcast. But please do feel free to contact me if you'd like further information or specific advice.